Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Stephen Tao joins Nate to talk about his book, London, Reign Over Me, how England's capital built classic rock. Nate and Stephen discuss how London suddenly emerged as an incubator of rock music in 1963 and nurtured trends from R&B to psychedelia to progressive rock. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Stephen Tao, author of London, Rain Over Me, How England's Capital Built Classic Rock. Stephen, welcome. Thanks for having me on, Nate. It's a pleasure. And so tell us a little bit about how you picked this topic for a book. Well, uh, it's really, uh, I mean, ultimately, I'm writing it as a music fan. Um, so um, basically, I mean, I, my household was... Uh, growing up, we weren't really allowed to have rock records in the house. Um, my dad was uh, pretty much against that. So I grew up on a lot of classical music. So gave me a lot of education into that. Uh, you know, we could get away with like an Elton John single or something like that. But that's about as far as it went. Um, but my dad passed away when I was in high school. And basically, uh, this is like 1978. So I found the most obnoxious record I could find. And that was the first Van Halen album. Um, and, uh, so I kind of started discovering and exploring, um, unfortunately by that time, late seventies, things were pretty, uh, mainstream was kind of stale in rock music by that point. And, uh, I was kind of a suburban high school that wasn't particularly cutting edge or aware of, let's say new wave or, you know, post-punk or anything like that. So, um, but then when I hit college in the eighties, uh, that was the MTV era, and it became all about the presentation, um, and everybody was talking about the videos, and I just didn't quite get that. I thought the music was kind of lame. Uh, so while my friends were listening to whatever Duran Duran and uh, and Madonna, I was that's when I discovered the '60s. In fact, one of my roommate's girlfriends um, said, "Oh, you know, you got to listen to this album," and it was uh, Quadrophenia by the Who. 
and I'd never heard it before. And I, I was just completely blown away by it. So I got into the who and the stones and the Beatles and the Hendrix, all the usual suspects in the sixties, uh, 20 years after the fact. So, so for me, I mean, in the nineties, when Nirvana and all that blew up, that was kind of like my sixties. Uh, and, uh, I just kind of became obsessed with the grunge thing. And I wrote a book about that. It was called the strangest tribe. And that came out in 2011. So for this book, I basically just went back to my own roots and looked at London as a music scene. And rather than looking at, let's say, a book about the Stones or the Who or whatever, uh, I just want to look at the whole music scene and kind of see where it came from, kind of like what I did with Seattle. And I think it works really well. And let's get a little bit into the context of your argument is essentially that London was the key incubator of the music that became classic rock, that it, that there's a process all the way through the 60s where London just inspires and supports a series of bands who take music on this pretty amazing evolution from derivative rhythm and blues into an explosion of styles, psychedelic, prog rock, progressive folk, the blues revival, heavy metal, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you diagnose some of the cultural factors that go into it. And that's why this is a perfect book for our show, because that's our fascination. And and you start with a quote, or you don't start with a quote, but you end with a quote close to the end, that uh, one of your theories is that the post-war generation in England had a different relationship to their parents than the post-war generation in America, where in America it was more hostile and more of a, a generation gap slash cultural conflict. But in England, it was more of a recognition that kids had an opportunity that their parents hadn't have. And you've got this quote, the unbridled joy, the ecstasy of living, of just living, is what made post-war London so special. Tell us a little bit about that. Like, what was it? What was different about the experience of the kids of the '60s from their parents in the '40s that made such a big difference? Um, you're talking specifically about uh, the UK. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I think first of all, um, just they experienced uh, uh, the World War II impact much more directly than America did. Uh, certainly the people that went over there from here uh, experienced all that, but the country itself, the United States, I mean, basically our economy was the only country in the world that grew during the war. Um, the country emerged as a superpower economically and militarily. Um, England, of course, the British Empire had crumbled. So you got these kids that had experienced you know, aftermath of massive bombing on London and all throughout the UK. And so they're growing up uh, pretty deprived, let's say, by our standards. And they didn't necessarily think that at the time, but certainly by American standards. And it was pretty bleak uh, in the 50s in England. Uh, it's kind of gray, a lot of coal fires during the winter months and soot in the air and uh, rationing for years after the war. So there was kind of a lot of that going on. And um, the kids were looking for something beyond that. And while they kind of got what their parents were going through in the sense that their parents were happy to just you know, just be able to get up and go to work without being bombed, you know, <laughs> and uh, as mundane as it is, the mundane, I mean, right now, I mean, look at what's going on now. We're all like, man, we'd love to just go to work. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> and, uh, you know, stuff that we took granted for granted. And, and now it's like, wow, just the basics. And I think for a lot of those kids, 
they were just looking for something and, and, and like I said, appreciated that their parents were just happy just to experience the normal life after the war. But um, yeah, so they were looking for something. I think they, 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 they latched on American blues. It was very different from what they experienced. They had heard before. It was exciting. It was just vital music. Um, and in America, I think, uh, well, one of the things that, I mean, they didn't have Vietnam directly impacting them either. So there was just everything sort of revolved around the Vietnam War um, with American youth in the 60s, in addition to, you know, of course, the civil rights movement and the, the drug culture and whatnot. But yeah. And and that, that's also in a context wherein there was a lot of educational opportunities for kids and also the end of compulsory military service. So you have this pretty clear line where if you were 18 before 1960 in England, you had to join the military. If you were, if you turned 18 in 1960, you were free from that. So you didn't have these Elvis getting drafted type scenarios for people like John Lennon. But you also had another thing where they were given the opportunity, people like John Lennon, Keith Richards, Pete Townsend, Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, Ray Davis, et cetera, et cetera, to go to art school. Tell us a little bit about that and, and how that impacted the music scene. That, that really fascinated me, that whole art school thing, because it's so English and so, uh, I mean, because in America, it's sort of like if you're an artist, uh, whether it's a, a musician or a visual artist, unless you're making money, you're not worth a damn, you know, <laughs> I mean, you really, uh, we just can't, don't, yeah. don't really value people. Uh, and, and whereas in Europe, it's different. And I think that certainly uh, after the war, um, people were encouraged to do that and, and to go to art school. And it was like this, you know, described to me by, I think it was John Steele from the animals that said, you know, this is like a window of opportunity that opened all of a sudden, you, know, you mentioned that there wasn't a compulsory military service anymore. And even if there, even besides that, you kind of had to just go, you know, you're a kid and now you're in the factory with your dad and you're going to work there until you die. All of a sudden, this thing opens up right around 1960 where you can go to art school and you don't have to no stringent requirements. You just kind of just go. And, and it was all of a sudden uh, like a little uh, period of, um, so, you know, to kind of get away from that and bounce ideas off of like-minded people and, you know, like the people you mentioned and Sandy Denny and uh, Freddie Mercury, all these other people, they went to art school and and were able to bounce all these ideas. And, and it was really critical for the music that was to come later. And I'm going to go ahead and cue our first song. This is something very far from classic rock, but it was an influence on almost everybody who ended up creating classic rock and this is Lonnie Donegan and uh, this is a song called Diggin' My Potatoes which is a little bit of a double entendre And that was Lonnie Donegan's skiffle version of an American song called Diggin' My Potatoes. Tell us a little bit about Lonnie Donegan, the skiffle boom, and also Chris Barber, the guy who kind of indirectly started the whole thing. Yeah, it's, it's funny because I'll start with Chris first and we'll get into Lonnie, but uh, Chris Barber was a, a person that he's, uh, he's like 
you know, ground zero of classic rock, even though he's a jazz trombonist, um, never really played rock music, played some bluesy kind of stuff, but, uh, but he got everything started. He was the guy that, uh, you know, he was like born in 1930, but he started a jazz band in 1949 and, and, um, he had Alexis Corner in his band. Alexis Corner, of course, later on started Blues Incorporated with Charlie Watts from the Rolling Stones. Um, but um, but Chris Barber was the guy that brought a lot of these American blues uh, people over to England in the 50s, especially people like Muddy Waters and uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp and Sonny Terry, Brownie McGee, and uh, all these incredible artists and exposed this whole generation of, of young people to American, you know, genuine the real deal, American blues. Um, and so he had uh, formed this group called the Chris Barber Jazz Band. And he had this guy in his band named uh, Tony Donegan, who went by the stage named Lonnie. And um, and they would switch up in the middle of their sets. They were doing jazz and they did sort of acoustic washboard thing that they called skiffle. Uh, and uh, Lonnie would play, uh, um, <clears throat> play banjo. Chris Barber would switch from trombone to bass. And they would play these songs. And they recorded this song called um, Rock Island Line. It's a cover of a Lead Belly song. And uh, Decca Records, of course, sat on it for a while, but eventually they released it. And it's like by 1956, 57, um, that becomes an enormous hit. And, and Skiffle, really, uh, a whole, all these kids that had no money. I mean, anybody could start a Skiffle band. You didn't need any money, didn't need equipment. You needed a like an old used guitar or a banjo would work. And uh, you could make a bass out of your mom, you know, basically furniture. You could uh, make a percussion using your mom's washboard because nobody had washing machines and found a thimble and boom, you have a band, skiffle band. So everybody from the, you know, John Lennon, uh, Jimmy Page, um, you could pretty much name anybody that was big in uh, classic rock later started in a skiffle band. And that's because, uh, you know, Chris Barber really introducing it. And the next sort of forefather I want to talk about, and you mentioned him, was Alexis Corner, who uh, is also part of that trad jazz scene, but sort of a subset of that, where he plays blues and rhythm and blues. And it's very different from what's going on in Liverpool, where you have this rock and roll scene that that launches directly out of the skiffle boom. In London, it's kind of like skiffle hits, and then it fades away. The club scene's dominated by trad jazz. And you just have a few of these radicals like Alexis Corner and Cyril Davis who are playing rhythm and blues and little clubs that they start themselves. What kind of Johnny Appleseed effect did Alexis Corner have? First, Nate, I want to compliment you because uh, you mentioned uh, Ray Davis and Cyril Davis. Um, their last names were, were the Welsh spelling D-A-V-I-E-S that most Americans call Davies. But the pronunciation is, as you uh, correctly mentioned, Davis. Um, so, but a lot of them changed their, they would change when they came to London, they changed their name to Davis, D-A-V-I-E-S, um, just to go with the English spelling, but just to point that out. Um, but, um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, so an Alexis Corner was really, the, he was a guy who was, uh, he was the, the torchbearer for the blues. Um, he was, as I mentioned earlier, he was in Chris Barber's band, way back in 1949 and Barber would play blues, but he wasn't, he didn't think that's really where things were going to go. He stuck with jazz and, and corner just kind of, he, he was the guy, he was, he was the gospel of the blues and he carried that through. And in 1960 starts his blues incorporated, which becomes like this first um, among the trad jazz in London, as you talked about trad jazz was, 
it was basically like Dixieland jazz. They called traditional or trad jazz that kind of dominated London uh, from like the late 50s and the early 60s. Um, but he, uh, that is Alexis Corner, he just kind of, he stuck with the blues. He was going to be the guy. And eventually um, there would be a tipping point around 1963 where uh, London would go from trad, trad jazz to blues, although the Brits called it rhythm and blues. And, and part of that, there's like two factors that happened in 63. And one of them is an outside factor that you quote Rod Argent as saying, the Beatles hit with the force of a pile driver. Describe that impact of the Beatles basically coming out of nowhere, because Liverpool might as well have been the North Pole as far as most uh, Londoners were concerned. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing. I mean, it's, it's London and everywhere else in England. It's something like here in the States, We, if you took, like, let's say, New York, Los Angeles, and uh, Washington, D.C., and rolled it into one city, that's kind of what like London is to the UK. Everything happens there in terms of culture, finance, government, uh, everything. And it's so for Liverpool to do what it did and the Beatles to come out of Liverpool is like it's like lightning striking, really. Um, and uh, and I think it's one of the things. In fact, I, I read this. Um, I can't remember where somewhere online I read it, it was it was a, an article written by someone who identified themselves as a millennial. I'm not going to rip on millennials, but um, but they that's they identified themselves as that. And they and the title of it was called um, "Baby Boomer Bands That Suck." And uh, it was all the you know all the big ones: the Beatles, the Stones, Zeppelin, you know, and uh, you know and those types of things are written to get people excited, either to you know just to to write about it, positive or negative, doesn't matter. But uh, if they're serious about it, though, to say that the Beatles suck, it does, it's, it's like the Beatles saying Chuck Berry sucked. It doesn't make any sense. You know, I mean, in other words, you, you may not like the Beatles. They may not be your thing. Uh, that's cool. That's a preference. But to say that they suck doesn't make any sense because nobody did what they did. Um, they completely blew everything apart. And nobody, anything anybody's listening to now happened because the Beatles said, you know what, we're going to write our own songs. And, you know, they could do it very well. So, uh, yeah, the Beatles were, they were going to, they were not going to make the same record twice. They were. Uh, and so by doing that, and not only doing that because they wanted to, but they also were able to have people were buying the records. So you had this combination of, uh, you, know, uh, you know, being able to do what an artist wants to do, which is a very selfish thing. And that's what artists really need to artists really need to be selfish to be good. Um, but you have that and you have the best of all words, because not only are they being artistic, but they're also people are buying their records. So now everybody can evolve. And so whoever wrote that, whatever they're listening to, doesn't happen without the Beatles. Absolutely. And around that same time within London, you've got Corner and his group, Blues Incorporated, which was doing a version of rhythm and blues and, and pretty competent, especially Cyril Davis. But they also had attracted sort of a nucleus of young players around them, people like Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker, Charlie Watts, and of course, Brian Jones, Keith Richards, and Mick Jagger. And they put together a combo they call the Rolling Stones, that takes that music, but it's self-consciously played by young pretty boys who realize that they've got a certain charisma that Corner and Davis just don't have. And they immediately start drawing large audiences in London. Yeah, the Stones are basically, they're, they're like you said, they're taking what Corner is doing. And, and everybody was like so respectful of Corner because Corner was respectful of the blues. You know, Corner was learning from Muddy Waters. And um, and so 
uh, he was serious about it. And so a lot of the people like you mentioned, like like Brian Jones and Mick Jagger and Keith Richards and all those guys, Charlie Watts, um, they were all enamored with what, you know, if you could get on stage, like Corner did a, his band had a residency at the um, uh, Ealing Club. And so it's just a ton of dumpy basement thing. But man, if you could get called up on stage to play or to sing with, with uh, Blues Incorporated, you made it basically. So that's what all those guys were. And they eventually that, that led to them being the Rolling Stones. But like you said, the Stones were, they were the next generation. They were just taking, okay, yeah, we like what you're doing here in Blues Incorporated. We're going to be that we're going to sell the stuff to the, to the kids. And the impact was enormous because very early on the Stones were, uh, there weren't a huge crowds early on, but it, it did catch on pretty quickly. And so a lot of the kids were going to see them. It was very sort of punk rock, even though punk rock didn't exist yet. Punk rock in the sense of, you know, there's sort of the, the good and the bad with punk rock. The ideal is that the ideal of punk rock is that anybody can do it. You don't have to be a Juilliard graduate. Get up on stage and play. If you're terrible, who cares? You know, but you're doing it. And so that's what the Stones were. They were up. They were doing it. They were like 20 yeah, year old kids on stage doing this stuff. And so I think that just that's what inspired so many people to to try the blues, to learn about it and to try to get on stage and do it. And let's hear a little bit of the Stones. This is uh, their version of Jimmy Reed's Baby Watch Wrong from an early unreleased demo. the Rolling Stones covering Jimmy Reed's Baby What's Wrong, and you can already hear the twin guitar attack of Keith Richards and Brian Jones. It really set them apart and ignited something in the London club scene. And you mentioned the Ealing Club, which was a kind of an informal club, but you go into more depth about some other clubs that are big parts of what they call the R&B boom that takes effect immediately on the heels of the Beatles' success and the Stone success in London. And you talk about the Eel, the Eel Pie Island Club as well as the Marquee Club and the Crawdaddy. Tell us what the role that these clubs played in the in the London scene. Well, uh, as you mentioned, the Eel Pie Island Club that was uh, that was a special place. Uh, it, it was on a on Eel Pie Island, which is uh, maybe. Uh, half hour west of central London. Uh, and it was a place for, we talked about how bleak it was for kids growing up in the fifties, uh, in London, in England. And so this was a place you could go to kind of get away from all that. And so it was a very kind of eclectic, sort of a weird place. Um, that was, uh, you, you had to kind of, it was an adventure to go there. This whole thing is an adventure. That's the thing. You know, that's the other thing that people have to understand here in America that getting the blues, just listening to the blues was not easy because the BBC wouldn't play it. So people like Keith Richards would catch a faint radio signal of Radio Luxembourg in the middle of the night, or you knew somebody that knew where cool records were and record shops somewhere in London or in Liverpool or wherever. Um, so discovering the blues was an adventure and going to a club like Ilpie Island was an adventure, you know, and, and you would go over there and you would have to go over this little rickety bridge to this island and 
you know, it was just like you would go over to this kind of broken down hotel by that point. And so you go there and check out all these musicians and everybody played there and you could talk to the musicians. It wasn't like it was the Rolling Stones. and You'd have to get through all the security. Now you'd hang out and you'd have a conversation with Keith Richards or Brian Jones about, you know, Chuck Berry, whether Chuck Berry was rock and roll or, or rhythm of blues, those kinds of things. And it was a very cool atmosphere for people. So uh, everybody played there, all these amazing British artists and as well as American blues artists came over and played there also. And you, you mentioned the, dearth of musical stimulation over the radio and up to the early to mid 60s the bbc had everything on a lock in england other than like you mentioned radio luxembourg coming over from europe but then suddenly in the mid 60s people put radio stations on boats and you get things like radio caroline and radio london tell us about these pirate radio stations and the role they played well, here, like here in the States, we had, you could get, let's say, well, they called it race music, but basically uh, the blues that most Americans still don't know about, you could find it, but, you know, white people didn't listen to that. You know, it was like white people had their stations and black people had their stations. Um, in England, you had nothing. You had the BBC, which played, um, you know, the only music they really played was like, uh, it was called the, the BBC Live Programme. And they would play uh, you know, show twos and like classical and stuff. And so and you mentioned the, the boats. Uh, they called them the pirate radio. 1964, Radio Caroline was the first one. They said, fine, we can. You're not going to play blues and jazz and stuff on on the BBC. We'll broadcast it from international waters, which was actually legal to do. And, and that was huge. That supported um, the Beatles and the Stones and the Animals and the Who and all those bands. That was all getting played, not to mention you know, the blues and all that stuff where it came from. So, yeah, that was critical that the pirate radio until the BBC shut them down in 1967. That was that was a critical time for young kids to get exposed to this music. And and you have this phenomenon where the Beatles storm England in 1963, tour all over the country. But then in 64, they're off conquering the States. And at, and at, and that time, the Stones step up from the club scene in London to play in theaters and all over the country and fill in the vacuum the Beatles had left. And when the Stones leave London, that creates this vacuum for bands like the Yardbirds, the Pretty Things, the Kinks, and especially the Who to come forward and galvanize a movement called the Mods. Tell us a little bit about that and the, the role, the connection between fashion and rock and roll in London. Uh, fashion was a big deal. And I think what's cool about the mod fashion thing almost like the grunge, quote, fashion thing that developed uh, like two decades later. It wasn't a conscious thing necessarily. You know, I mean, it became a conscious thing. But the mods were basically kids that were, you know, everything, like I said, everything was gray. I mean, literally gray in the 50s. Um, and um, so everybody wore clothes. That, everything was drab. You wore Drake, you know, kind of drab clothes and um, and so it was cloudy and rainy and miserable. And so young kids like the guys in the who and, and the guys in small faces, you know, they would start to like, let's wear colorful clothes. And they started to dress not just, you know, very well, um, but also very colorfully. And if you look at early pictures of the who, which becomes a, a managed thing in terms of a mod image. But initially, it's really not. It's really just a, a bunch of kids that are like, well, we're going to dress more color, the better. And that's why they said, you know, it's sort of the cliche, which is true. The 50s in, in the UK were in black and white and the 60s were in color. And, and I think that's what the mods were really about. But it was about, 
you know, wearing this, the right kinds of clothes and, and you would, you know, you, you would ride a Vespa scooter. That's what a mod did. And then you kind of coalesce around that. And, and you'd listen to bands like the who and the yard birds and then, you know, Motown over here, you, you listen to that. And, uh, it became a whole little interesting subgroup. And the thing with, um, the popularity of the various bands and the waves of popularity, of the various bands is that, at the time, it was seen very much as if a band was playing singles on the radio, they were a pop band by definition. And so there was this sort of transition from the Stones being a quote-unquote underground blues band to suddenly they're a pop band and they're doing Buddy Holly songs and having charting singles. And for bands like the Yardbirds and somebody like Eric Clapton, this is a real sort of you know crossroads. And, and he, as soon as the Yardbirds record what's going to become their first successful single, For Your Love, written by an outside songwriter, Graham Goldman. Eric Clapton goes a different direction and picks up with a guy named John Mayall. Tell us a little bit about that and the role of John Mayall in keeping the pure blues flame alive. Well, as you've mentioned, Nate, I mean, really, the, the what they called rhythm and blues, we would just call it blues here, but they called it R&B, uh, really blew up in London in 63 with the Stones and the Yardbirds and Manford Man, some of those bands, the Animals coming down from Newcastle. Um, so 63 and 64, it really blew up in 64. But I, by the time you get to 1965, it's like, okay, we're, we're doing this thing, we're doing the boozy thing, and that's cool, we're getting club dates, but if we want to make records, if we want to make money we got to make a kind of a choice of art versus commerce and so in the case of the yardbirds you'd mentioned uh, they bought a song from grant goldman called for your love and um and everybody was on board in the band except for eric clapton and so clapton was like well I'm, i don't want to do this i want to be a blues guy so he quit the band and he joined john mail and the blues breakers and uh mail is a is a very fascinating figure because he was, if you think about it, he had so much talent in his band over the years. And it was like he wanted to have, it didn't matter that he was, he didn't have to be the best player in his band. It didn't matter. It just, he wanted the best musicians possible. And he brought in guys like Clapton and uh, Peter Green and Jack Bruce and John McVie, all these incredible players. So Clapton joins that and, and the Blues Breakers really, like I said, Alexis Corner carried the torch early on for the blues. Mail carried it through this period of time where, you know, the Brit bands were trying to become more pop single oriented because they wanted to get, you know, they wanted to make a living. And and he was like, I'm going to keep the blues alive, even though he knew he wasn't going to be necessarily get famous doing it. But but he would uh, he would just kind of carry that torch. And he did manage to get album contracts. And so they were putting out albums and selling enough to keep doing it. And at the same time, Clapton's participated in a little bit of a technological revolution that's triggered right there in London, along with Pete Townsend and Richie Blackmore, where there's a tech shop by a guy named Jim Marshall. What do they do there? I, I love that story, the whole Marshall amplification story, because it was they become this dominant force. In fact, I, I went out to dinner with Terry Marshall uh, a few years ago in London, and um, and he he we were talking about the Marshall sort of signature, you know, on the top of the amps, so the white signature Marshall swoop with the, against the, the black uh, color of the amps. And uh, he so he wrote, he wrote he wrote his name Terry Marshall in that writing, and I was just like, wow, that's so cool. Um, but they they really started. Um, it was just done. It wasn't like a 
major corporate thing. You know, Jim Marshall, I was a musician, a drum drummer, and, and he was a drum teacher. And he had a little shop in West London and he started, he sold drums. He started selling guitars and, um, and people like Clapton, you mentioned Pete Townsend, uh, Richie Blackmore was later in Deep Purple, uh, big Jim Sullivan, who was a big session guitar player. They would walk in to the Marshall shop and say, Hey, you should start, you know, you should start um, stocking amplifiers, you know, because we're not happy with what you've got with the amplifiers that are out right now, which is now say 63, 64. Um, that's the Vox company. That's V as in Victor OX. Um, the Beatles and the Stones used them. They weren't they were okay, but they weren't particularly loud or loud enough as the audiences got bigger and the venues got bigger. And you had the Fender company here in America, but they were often too expensive for British musicians to afford. So, you know, Jim Marshall, along with uh, his son, Terry, and some other musicians and stuff and engineers started working on doing amplifiers. And they brought in guys like Clapton and, and Towns and some of the others to just, you know, bounce ideas. What do you think about this sound? What do you think about that sound? So it was very musician developed uh, the way it happened and and nobody sort of knew that this was going to become you know within a couple of years marshall was going to become the standard in uh in rock amplification yeah and bands like eric clapton first with john mayall and then with cream uh the who townsend with the who and also Jimi hendrix comes over from america chess chandler of the animals retires from playing bass and becomes a manager discovers the talent of the century brings him over to london and suddenly you've got you know a black guy with with two brits all three of them with wild afros and stacks and stacks of martial amps that can just blow the doors off a club and nobody had ever seen anything like it. And you describe Hendrix as very much sort of a reset, that there was a pre-Hendrix and then there's post-Hendrix. And everything after Hendrix is changed because of the sonic impact of added genius to this technological wonder of the martial amp and boom, things are off and running. And in the wake of Hendrix, a psychedelic scene starts up in London. That's yet another twist. Uh, yeah, Hendrix is, I mean, if you think about just in general, the 60s, uh, game changers, the Beatles, Bob Dylan, uh, Jimi Hendrix, really. Um, and, uh, and certainly in London, when Hendrix came over and he mentioned about Chaz Chandler uh, from the animals, he became a manager and he discovered Hendrix in New York and uh, brought him over to England. And it was such a, a cultural change for, for uh, Hendrix being a, a black man uh, in, a, in 1960s America experiencing, you know, racial discrimination and all that nonsense and having to deal with all that. Um, and he comes over to England all of a sudden, and this is what the, a lot of the blues, you know, people experience earlier uh, coming over from America to the UK. We're like, wow, we're treated like human beings. Not only that, people admire us, you know. And so uh, everybody was sort of fawning over him. And and I think Hendrix's personality was just so, you know, a lot of times um, guitar players are not, they're alpha males. They're just kind of arrogant. And um, Hendrix was not like that at all. He was a very, just a, a very kind of shy off stage, but very sweet person um, and uh, just a, a very likable person. Um, but uh, when he got on stage, he was crazy and a maniac. And it just, it like you said, it set, it reset everything. It, it just was like all of a sudden, this what this guy's doing, nobody's done this before. Nobody sounded like this before. They're literally knocking us over with not just the volume. You know, you ever see a band... Uh, and they're just loud because they're they're not very good and they just want to be loud because you can kind of cover up 
how they how terrible they are because they're loud. Um, you know, Hendrix was loud because he needed to be loud, and and he was just so talented sonically. He could do whatever he wanted to do, so it kind of knocked everybody out. And, and and you mentioned about the psychedelic thing, so yeah, I mean Hendrix is sort of touching on that too. He's sort of bridging that gap between the blues and psychedelia. Um, and, uh, and of course there's a psychedelic scene in, in uh, the UK with bands like the move and, uh, Pink Floyd and stuff. Yeah. And this underground scene's blowing up in London, a new, a new wave of clubs like the roundabout, which is a former, uh, train demo where the, the engines, you know, it's like Thomas, the train basically where the trains go home to sleep at night, turned it into a rock club. There's another club, the UFO club, it's spelled UFO, but they pronounce it UFO where bands like Pink Floyd and the move are doing things. But there's also a studio psychedelia that's triggered by the Beatles, Sgt. Peppers, but also the Moody Blues Days of Future Past and the Zombies Odyssey and Oracle. And a key technological element there is the Mellotron. Tell us a little bit about this sort of proto-analog synthesizer. Yeah, the Mellotron's a fascinating uh, moment in music history, right? Because you have you know, bands are starting to progress. And as I said, the Beatles really started all that as, you know, as we talked about earlier, but everybody's kind of, because the Beatles unleashed all this stuff, everybody's trying, what next, what's going on, what's the new technology. And so, you know, the Beatles, like you mentioned, Sgt. Peppers, they're recording with like an orchestra, you know, because they're the Beatles and they can afford to, but not everybody had that kind of money, access to resources. So uh, the Mellotron company, I uh, developed this thing. It's like a, you know, we would call it a sort of a proto synthesizer, but it was a keyboard instrument where you'd press down on it and you'd have tape recordings of actual instruments. Could be a flute, could be a trumpet, could be anything. And it'd be in different octaves. And you could kind of create uh, something that sounded, it didn't really sound like an orchestra, but it sounded, uh, it, it was just really unique and, 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 and it made everything sound bigger. So uh, bands like the Moody Blues and, um, uh, you mentioned uh, the zombies, obviously, and Oracle. Um, and, of course, the Beatles took advantage of, of this. Later, Led Zeppelin would as well uh, would, would use this. And, it, and it's just a very cool instrument, but it's, it's, it's kind of like one of those things that when you have technological limitations, you have to figure your ways around it. So the Mellotron, you, hold, you can only hold down, hold down the key for like eight seconds, and you have to let it you know, rewind. <laughs> the tape underneath would have to rewind. And so it was really a challenge to play it. And then... A lot, most bands didn't tour with the Mellotron because it was such a bulky thing and the tapes would get all messed up. So, but the Moody Blues would because Mike Pinder, uh, from the Moody Blues, who was the keyboard player, he worked at the Mellotron factory. So he knew how to fix them and he could, and things went awry on stage, he could fix it pretty quickly. And let's hear another song sample. And this is a pretty unlikely record because the pretty things were originally the punkest, sloppiest most unruly of the R&B explosion bands. But in 67, they hook up with former Beatles engineer Norman Smith, who's also producing Pink Floyd at Abbey Road at this time, and somehow get this deal with, with EMI, even though they haven't had a hit in years, basically unlimited studio time. And they kick it off with a single, Defecting Gray.
that was the pretty things defecting gray which is a to me a really landmark single between a, a clear line between the mod and freak beat sounds of 65 and 66 and the full-on psychedelic classic rock sounds of 67 going forward tell us a little bit about the pretty things and their transformation in the concept album that they produce the pretty things don't get a lot of uh a lot of credit, and that's unfortunate. Uh, as you mentioned early on, they were really a much more raw, uh, you might even use the word grunge version of, of the Rolling Stones. And uh, they were they were dangerous. You know, Phil May from the Pretty Things was wearing his hair down to his shoulders down in like by 1964, which nobody was doing yet. Uh, but um, but yeah, they, tr- they kind of got tired of doing that. Let's go for try to get a single, um, and right around 66, and then they, they record this song, Defecting Gray, which is way out there, especially for the time. It's got this bluesy thing, and it's got this weird backwards tape thing going on in the middle of it. And it's, it's like kind of like Sgt. Pepper's, you know, before Sgt. Pepper's, really. Um, and it was just, it was so out there that uh, it, it, was, it wasn't really considered much of anything in terms of commercially, but it, yeah, as you mentioned that it was a bridge between kind of the earlier stuff and what would become that concept album and the psychedelic and the experimentation that was going on. And it would lead the pretty things into their own rock opera, uh, which came out in 1968 called SF sorrow and uh, which preceded the who's Tommy, everybody celebrated Tommy, which is a great you know record, uh, but they celebrated that as the original, um, rock opera, whereas the pretty things kind of beat them to it with SF sorrow. And, and, and people that aren't familiar with that, just go ahead and listen to it. If you're into that kind of sort of psychedelic stuff, it's, it's really good. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a masterpiece. And I think it holds, it, it's earned its reputation over the decades, but that shows the sort of ambition that's coming into the scene. I mean, the who led the way with their 66 suite, a quick one while he's away, which is like a nine minute song that takes multiple parts and stitches them together. Very different than pop song structures. It's not a three minute thing. It's a nine minute thing. And it's, it's influenced by classical music. And in the wake of psychedelic new strands start to form and you divide it into three major avenues that, that the innovations in London take. And that, and that one of them is prog rock one of them is progressive folk, and the third one is the blues revival. Talk about those three things and how they, they interrelated and all emerged sort of out of the 67 milieu there in London. Um, yeah, I just actually I was just looking up. Defecting Gray was 67, so that was, uh, I got my years mixed up there, so um, apologize for that. No um, worries. <laughs> uh, so in terms of, uh, uh, of uh, that strands of everything, that was kind of a challenge uh, for me as a writer, as a historian, to try to figure out how, why this happened, because it was just so much going on. And once the sort of the bluesy thing early, the R&B thing kind of, you know, that kind of, I didn't say went away, but but it wasn't as big and where things went. And one of the things that one of the directions it went was um, that progressive rock. And that was its whole thing. Where did that come from? And, and that was a challenge to kind of get to that. Um, and uh, so I don't know, do you want me to kind of talk about any of these? Yeah, let's talk about or? prog rock first and, okay. and, and how it emerged out of the psychedelic scene. Like you had bands like Tomorrow in London that are playing alongside Pink Floyd and the move in the psychedelic clubs. But within a couple of years, their guitar player, Steve Howe, has joined Yes!, 
and it's a whole new thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was, um, it was the, the Prague thing when I was writing that chapter, I was like, man, so what, where did this come from? And I'm looking for some real simple sort of straight line from, let's say, rhythm and blues to Prague, and it wasn't there. And so it just kind of tapped into a lot of things. One of the things was, and you mentioned Tomorrow, uh, which was doing a concept album of their own, um, and the guitar player, Steve Howe, um, and he kind of came out of that sort of uh, hippie psychedelic thing and ended up in Yes. And so you had, and Steve Howe, if you know anything about him, he's influenced by so many things, um, you know, Django Reinhardt, Wes Montgomery, Antonio Vivaldi, uh, and as, a, as well as blues guitar players as well. Um, so he's bringing that. And so you have some of that psychedelic thing ending up and kind of evolving into prog rock. And then you have people that are tapping into classical and uh, European traditions, bands like uh, King Crimson um, and, um, and later Emerson Lake and Palmer would tap into that. And you have bands that uh, were kind of looking in or coming from a folky direction because uh, it was sort of expanding upon telling stories and weaving tales or uh, kind of reimagining what England was like 500 years ago. And, you know, you have bands like Jethro Tull kind of coming out of that. And I'm glad you brought up Jethro Tull because to me, they're the one band that that took part of all three of those strands, the prog rock, the progressive folk and the blues revival. When they first come out, they're purely in the blues revival camp, which is, I think, sort of like an outgrowth of cream Eric Clapton's cream being so massively successful in the Jimi Hendrix experience. And that makes people go back and look at John Mayall and what he's been doing. And so you see Peter Green playing with John Mayall and then Mick Taylor, who's later going to join the Stones playing with John Mayall. And Peter Green spins off into Fleetwood Mac and, and the blues revival is really big in England in 68. And Jethro Tull is right in the thick of that. If you see their appearance on the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, which was unreleased at the time, but is now out on DVD and streaming, Jethro Tull, and I think they've got Tony Iommi, future Black Sabbath guitar player, they do. In, there, in there for that gig. Totally bluesy. I mean, it sounds very similar to what Captain Beefheart's doing at that time before he goes off into you know Yoko Ono type avant noise. Jethro Tull and Captain Beefheart are in the same place for a brief moment in 1968. But then Ian Anderson starts to incorporate classical influences and do long, long form suites like Thick as a Brick, which is, you know, a full album piece that actually hangs together and is full of hooks and easy to listen to and was a massive popular success. But he's also heavily influenced by this British folk thing. And that's one thing we need to go back and talk about the... Peggy Seeger and Ewan McCall and the and the British folk scene, which was different than the British blues and R&B scene, and had been going on since the fifties. The it's it's kind of that that really struck me because there was I was when I discovered the intensity of this parallel scene that was going on, like you said, in the fifties and the sixties, or that was really really hopping at that time, which was this folk club scene um, that was going on completely separate from the blues and the rock scene. So you had these very small little clubs, maybe not even clubs, sometimes in the back room of a pub, very informal, often not even a PA or stage. And, um, and you could actually, 
make a living and, and have a pretty decent life as a traveling folk musician in, in the UK in the 50s or in the 60s. And you could, you know, people would put you up, you know, you could, uh, you could live pretty cheaply and you could play little clubs and things like that. And if you talk to a lot of the musicians, they'll tell you there was absolutely no crossover between the folk clubs and what was going on in the rock clubs. And, and they're, they're insistent, there absolutely was no crossover. And, and, and I would kind of fight them on it because it wasn't necessarily a major crossover. It wasn't like uh, later on where you had a club that was playing, uh, they had punk and metal bands in Seattle and all of a sudden it was you know chocolate and peanut butter and now you have Reese's Cups and grunge. Um, it was, um, but they were kind of subtly influencing one another and you mentioned Toll. I mean, Jethro Toll didn't play the folk clubs, but they knew about them. They went to them, um, and they were aware of what was going on. And you could not be aware of it being in England anyway. And certainly Ian Anderson growing up was exposed to that kind of music. So he brought that in. And so you, you see a lot of these sort of subtle influences. I mean, you know, Led Zeppelin was so influenced by uh, what was going on in the folk clubs and uh, musicians like Bert Janch. And you could hear, that, especially this early, like first, let's say, three, four Led Zeppelin albums, you can hear that folk influence and bands like Traffic and, and certainly Jethro Tull. Yeah, they they bring it all together. And and I'm glad you mentioned the Jimmy Page influence and, and Bert Janch because, you know, White Mountainside on the first Led Zeppelin album is just a Bert Janch song that he added yes. a new title to and, and yeah. put his own credits on the songwriting. And Bert Janch also forms a rock band or a quasi-rock band with Pentangle with John Renborn. And, and they've got a, a jazz rhythm section and sort of put together a British version of folk rock. And, the, and the, there's also another group called Fairport Convention and the Straubs that you, that you talk about. And the Straubs and Fairport Convention share a singer in Sandy Denny who flitted back and forth. And she's also uh, performed with Led Zeppelin on Led Zeppelin Four, Battle of Evermore. So everybody's heard her beautiful voice. Tell us a little bit about that and, and how the Fairport Convention got over their early reputation as the British Jefferson Airplane and, and really forged a true British folk rock. Actually, since you mentioned the Pentangle first, let me just mention them real quickly. Yeah, sure. Uh, because there is a tie-in, as you mentioned, between like Bert Jansen and uh, and uh, Jim Page and and Led Zeppelin and all that. Uh, but that's uh, people have asked me. They'll say, "Give us uh, you know an artist or a band that you didn't." you weren't familiar with and, and you, you, you just discovered them and you thought they were brilliant and they were, um, they were, excuse me here, uh, but they, um, they were really different. Um, they just kind of had this very quiet acoustic -y, not, it, it could be very folky, very traditional, but also bluesy and it could kind of rock a little bit. Um, they could do these beautiful harmonies and you had between Bert Jantz and, and, uh, John Renborn and these two, really wonderful guitar players and a very quiet rhythm section. The drummer, Terry Cox, played with brushes uh, there. You'd see the pentangle. You would, it wasn't like you'd go to a, see a band and you'd get all excited and you, you know, you know, get jumping up and down or whatever and moshing or whatever. Uh, you'd sit down and you'd listen. Like you go to see the Philharmonic and you'd listen. And when you're done, you clap. <laughs> and uh, not, and it's it's they're quiet but not boring. So I think they're they're a band that I just really wanted to uh, throw some uh, props out to. Um, but um, at Fairport Convention, uh, Sandy Danny and uh, actually I so I teach this class uh, 
at Delaware Valley University on rock and roll history. We're still doing it. We're doing it remotely now. Um, but uh, we actually did prog rock and, and British folk rock um, this week. So I was listening today. In fact, I was listening to uh, <clears throat> Fairport Convention and Sandy Denny. And, and I swear, I tell you, I hear her voice and I, I, I the tears start rolling down. My, I, I mean, I, it's so powerful. Um, and, and so... Uh, and, and I think she she was initially a folk singer. And again, here's another crossover. She was a folk singer in a folk club sitting up there on a stool playing acoustic guitar with that voice. And and uh, she got recruited by the Straubs and uh, they did a, one record with her. And then she moved on to Fairport Convention and she completely changed the dynamic in Fairport Convention. As you mentioned that early on, they were very Fairport Convention was uh, they were so young that's the thing people don't realize they're like literally teenagers 16 and 17 year olds making an album so uh, their first album was very influenced by the west coast of the u.s and people like also you know bob dylan and Joni mitchell the birds so uh they were tagged as sort of the british jefferson airplane which they never liked um but uh, sandy denny would join Fairport Convention after their first record, and they're going to start to go into this different direction. She's going to really have a major influence in terms of the folk, uh, the traditional folk thing. And they start to, by the time we get to 1969, and they do this record called Legion Leaf, which is really, that's their sort of seminal folk rock record where they're now mixing. You don't know whether you're listening to a song that is 500 years old or was just written yesterday, you just don't know, or written back then. And so um, they're just kind of creating this, it's very British folk rock. It's not the jingly jangly American version of a folk rock that the birds are doing. It's a very, it's digging into British traditions uh, and, uh, and, and kind of updating that. Yeah, and we got to mention Richard Thompson, Thomas Thompson, they're brilliant, brilliant lead guitar player, possibly the best out of all the many gifted lead guitar players of that era he might be the very best one but i want to mention one last thing before we wrap and that's you've got this quote from bill bruford that i think gives a key context to this period that there it was an incredibly prosperous era this is before the oil shocks of the early 1970s this is the go-go 60s when the post-war economy is clicking on all cylinders america of course has been prosperous for uh, you know, right through since the since World War II, and you know Germany and Japan have revived thanks to the investments of the Allies. But Britain is sharing in the prosperity as well. And Bill Bruford, you've got this great quote from Bill Bruford where he's saying, "It's one of those usually generous times when you are being encouraged to do whatever, and money in these things is never inert. Either there's no money, which is the usual problem, so musicians have to please the customer, or there's tons and tons of money, like there was in my day." And you don't have to worry about the customer at all. And you can play in 5-4, use an orchestra or flutes. And so this huge opportunity for bands to spend money and take time in the studio. And it wasn't a folly because there was a massive audience that was buying this stuff. So you had a band like King Crimson's that's doing this stuff that would have been unimaginable just a couple of years earlier. You know, they're bringing in classical influences. They've got a Mellotron. They've got flutes. They're doing, you know, poetry readings, basically. And you've got groups like, you know, Deep Purple or Pink Floyd that are playing with orchestras and the Moody Blues are touring with orchestras and Mellotrons. And just 
trying all this incredible stuff and taking advantage of, of the opportunity they had. And I want to I want to play one last song before we end, and this is uh, Jethro Tull. Really don't mind from the Thick as a Brick Suite. And you make all your animal deals And your wise men don't know how it feels To be thick as a brick And the sandcastle virtues are all swept away And that was Jethro Tull doing Really Don't Mind from Thick as a Brick. And that's one thing I want to thank you for, because I hadn't listened to Jethro Tull in decades. And I really, really enjoyed going back and listening to him. And I was really amazed at how well Thick as a Brick is held up. And, you know, it's sort of been the convention of rock criticism that this whole era in prog rock was just ill-advised and that things like Deep Purple's Concerto for Rock Group and Orchestra or Emerson, Lake and Palmer's whole career was just this unfortunate diversion from rock and roll that you know where where white people took blues and rhythm blues based dance music and turned it into this art song and it and it's a mistake and a bad direction but there's a really an enormous amount of really creative and fun stuff that's enjoyable to listen to and i don't think there's anything wrong with performers saying you know i love the blues but i'm not black i'm not a african-american i don't have that experience I want to draw on things that are more integral to my experience, like classical music and folk music. And uh, some amazing stuff came out of that. What are your final thoughts to sum up this era? Well, you know, it's, it's funny you mention that because it's, it's, it's like, I, I just, I kind of have a, a problem with, with music critics, let's say in general, oh, sure. <laughs> because they're just, they make these re- statements that become true. And it's like, oh, well, prog rock, they took things too far. We needed punk rock to set things right again. And it's like, no, I mean, you know, I'll tell you, it depends on the mood I'm in. Sometimes I really want to hear a whole album side by Yes. And sometimes I want to hear a two-minute song by the Ramones. It's all good. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so uh, that always bothered me. Uh, and I think it's like, it's, it's okay, you know, uh, you know, to push the boundaries and maybe it is going to be terrible or maybe it's not, maybe it's going to be great, but you're never going to know unless you try. So I, I think there was the spirit of that time, which was, yeah, we're going to try whatever. And you know, when the Sergeant Peppers came out, half the people thought it was terrible, you know, uh, because it was just so out there and you know, people eventually caught up to it. But um, yeah, Emerson, Lake Apollo, they're just, it's too much with the says It's too much. It's too long. It's too, it's, it's pompous. It's self-indulgent. And I'm like, you know, every great artist needs to be self-indulgent to do it right. You know? Yeah. And so that to me, I always bother me, you know, because it's just like, no, it's not, it shall be written and it's stamped. It's like in the 10 commandments, it is written. There must be punk rock because prog rock is terrible. And it's like, no, there can be both. In fact, Yes was thriving during the whole punk era, you know? And so you could go see the remotes. And I, I get it. I get the advantage of seeing a, a band and, you know, being 10 feet from the band. I love doing that. I love going to club shows and stuff. But sometimes, you know, it's cool to experiment. So I think it was really that's what really struck me about the era that, like you said, like that proof quote was, which there was the money was there. So you could 
go in the studio and record what you wanted to do. And it, you wouldn't have to worry about, well, is my audience going to get angry if I throw a sitar or a flute or a melotron on this record? You'd have to worry because people are open to it. And if you think about like a King Crimson, did you imagine, especially early on King Crimson, a band like that being that big now, you know, I mean, a band that experimental, uh, being that big, I mean, you know, this was not some corporate engineered thing. This was just a bunch of musicians that just had ideas. And, uh, and I think it was just such a wonderful era. And I'm hoping that we can kind of, I mean, I, I, I'm not one of those like older people that says, oh, these young kids today, they don't know what good music is because there's, there's so many young, talented people out there making great music right now. Um, and a lot of the bands that I like are, you know, younger bands, but they're just not getting exposure because it doesn't fit into to what the you know the big corporations said we should be listening to so the spirit's always going to be there hopefully it'll come back you know on a mainstream level yeah definitely it's it's fascinating and that's kind of the project of this whole podcast series is to try to understand what has happened in musical history and try to figure out where are we and where we might go so Stephen, thanks for helping us explore uh the mysteries of history and rock and roll the book is London Reign Over Me, How England's Capital Built Classic Rock, and the author is Stephen Tao. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Nate. It was a lot of fun. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Come back next week when Nate's guest will be Dylan Jones to talk Glenn Campbell, Jimmy Webb, and Wichita Lineman. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. London, Reign Over Me, How England's Capital Built Classic Rock is published by Roman and Littlefield. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. <laughs>